0: Father in heaven, we're thankful for the, the, the good nourishing lunch and the fellowship, and we just pray now as we nourish our minds some more that you would prepare them for that and, and prepare my words so that they would be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we've kind of given you the, uh, the framework for the modeling. Uh, we've de- defined some of the terms, so now we're going to go into the individual the individual elements in that in that model and see what's what with those and and what they're involved in and for the next two the next two hours we're going to be spending our time on the major cations which are calcium magnesium potassium and sodium and we're also going to be addressing tillage and porosity because it's the cations these major cations that affect the porosity of the soil and tillage is also related to the porosity of the soil the aeration of the soil, so we want to look at that a little bit. Some people have some questions about you know, comments that the Spirit of Prophecy has made and, and how do you relate to those and, and some of the stuff that people are doing or not doing. Um, <clears throat> let me turn this on. Okay, so the first one, what I'm going to do is I'm going go to go through the individual elements and then we're going to look at them combined as they inter- interact with each other. Calcium is a, uh, in its roles, it's a double-plus charged ion. It's got a two-plus charge to it, which makes it a, a, have more attraction and more, more uh, attachment than a single-plus charge were, would, which you'll see, we're, we'll get to, uh, potassium and sodium are both a single-plus charge. Um, so its roles are in cell wall construction, cell division, cell membrane function, and material transfer in and out of cells, soil structure, and it is immobile. In other words, once it's, once it's put in place in a plant, it's not moving. And so you'll find, you'll see, and we'll see it in just a second here, when you wind up with deficiencies on it, it'll always show up in the younger part of the plant first because it is immobile, it's not going to move. And the younger part of the plant, the new growth, because it's immobile. Okay, deficiency symptoms on calcium. Uh, The terminal bud dies. In other words, the young growth, the new growth, young growth, if it doesn't have enough uh, calcium, the terminal bud will die. Young leaves get hooked, kind of a hooked look to them and you'll get blossom end rot on fruit where the blossom end turns black particularly on tomatoes now it, it in relation to that it might not be a lack of calcium in the soil but if you don't have adequate transpiration water flow into the plant it might not get enough calcium just because of that and so you might have plenty in there but if you're not getting if you're like if you're in a high tunnel for example and it's it's warm and humid in there and the the transpiration shuts down on the plant and it's not moving the nitrogen, I mean I'm sorry, the calcium um, into the fruit sufficiently as it's developing the fruit you can still get blossom end rot even though you have adequate in the soil because you're not getting proper transpiration on the plants. Because the roots have to go to the calcium, the calcium doesn't come to the roots and if it's really dry you're not going to get adequate calcium uptake as, as a result of that, and so you can leave the blossom end rot. So you might have, you, you do a soil test, and you look at the soil test, and it says, oh, wow, I have plenty of calcium there. But this is where environmental conditions, environmental influences come into play on uh, on what happens in the growing system.
1: Is any of this in McKenzie's book?
0: Mm-hmm. Quite a bit of it is. Not all of it. Another reason you'll see when we get to it, another reason you can get blossom end rot is there's not enough boron. Boron facilitates uh, the uptake of calcium and, and mobilizes it. And if you don't have enough boron, you might not get enough mobility in the calcium. And again, you might have adequate calcium in the soil, but it's not adequately mobilized, and so you can still get blossom end rot on your, uh, on your fruit. Uh, the symptoms of an excess of calcium is tie up of other nutrients. This is the biggest problem. Calcium is the heavy hitting cation in the soil. It's the heaviest one and it's the heaviest. It, it, it can literally control everything else including the anions. And If you get excessive amounts of calcium in the soil, it can shut down your other nutrients from being adequately taken up. Um, the ironic thing is you can have hot, if you have everything else in good quantities, and you you have high calcium, as long as you have adequate quantities, stuff grows really good. Calcium is the only element, the only element, that you can have excessive levels of it and things do better, as long as you have everything else. If you don't have everything else, that's not gonna work. And I'll give you an illustration of it. The the chalk soils of England um, are high calcium soils, but they're very productive soils. And the only difference is, is that where they have all of the other elements in the levels that they need to have them, they do really well. And so it would, you would never be able to bring the calcium level down to what would be considered the optimum level because there's so much calcium there. Um, the, the farm out at Daystar, they have, they have um, tremendous reserves of, of free calcium in the soil. and so even though on the colloids they have only 75%, they have this tremendous reserve there, and so to try, to, and they have it coming in on our water, and so to try to bring that down to the optimum level is just not realistic. What you have to do is you have to bring everything else up to its optimum levels and just let that, that, that level be where it is. If you can get it to the optimum level, well, I call calcium the love element. Because it makes everything work better. But if it gets out, if it overwhelms everything else so that there's not, um, how do you put it? You don't have structure. You don't have, you know, obedience in, frame, in, in the context of that love. But it's the only element you can do that with. It can be, it can be higher than what optimum is as long as everything else is in, in good levels and things work pretty well. This is the form, it's in the double plus ion form that it's held on the, co- the colloids in the soil. This is the form, the double plus charge ion form.
1: But Can you have that in a emitting
0: uh, It'll break down to that. We'll, we'll look at it in just a second. Okay, okay and, and, and the symptoms of other nutrient deficiencies. It comes back to the tie-up of other nutrients on it. If you have excessive amounts of it, you don't have adequate levels of these other nutrients, it will sufficiently suppress them and tie them up to the point you won't be able to get adequate amounts of of those nutrients. So those what you, this is what you usually see. Um, one thing that I will say when we're talking about these deficiencies and excesses, almost invariably plants are, are having hidden hunger when you can't see anything. They're already in hunger, but the symptoms are not manifesting themselves yet. And so that's why it's important to really know what you actually have to be sure that the plants are getting, you know, what they need to grow, because a lot of times they're suffering from malnourishment and you don't know it because the symptoms have not manifested themselves sufficiently to uh, <clears throat> for you to be able to observe it.
1: What percentages begin to push the um, excess? If sixty-eight is your ideal, it, it,
0: if you if you have adequate everything else, you can be as high as. 85 percent. That's not ideal, but 80 uh, percent. There are soils that are running 80, 81, 82 percent and have everything else, and they do great, they do fine. But I don't, you know, in saying that, you know, in the book The Ideal Soil by Michael Astor, if any of you have looked at that book, he actually says that to, to, you should run your, your calcium at 83 and a half percent if you're over a pH of 7. I don't agree with that assessment, particularly if he's trying to use the Albrecht um, modeling. I, I don't understand why he, he, he doesn't elaborate on why he recommends that. They, there's no documentation of anything where he came up with that number. I wondered, <clears throat> I actually was speaking with the, the re- manager of the research farm at University of Kentucky, and um, we were talking, and he was saying something about well, Dr. Albrecht, you know, in his later years re- rec- recommended, you know, in higher pH soils, just recommended. You know higher levels of calcium, and I don't ever recall reading that. But I said, well, maybe I missed it, and I didn't notice it. And then he said, yeah, So we just, since our pHs are above seven, we just push it up to 83 and a half percent. I said, 83 and a half percent. Where you know, why 83 and a half percent? Anyway, he couldn't exactly tell me why. But then I was somebody had asked me a question about pHs over seven and where you should run, and they were reading the book and. And so I went back and I got the book out, and I, I looked at it, and sure enough, that's where he got it from. He got it from, from Astor's book, in, you know, The Ideal Soil, because that's what he recommends, 83.5% calcium. I can't say his number's wrong. I don't know where he's, you know, he uses Logan Labs, and I, so I don't know where he's, where he's getting that number. He doesn't elaborate on where he does and why he recommends that. But I, I completely disagree with the idea that just because you're above a pH of 7, that you should run your calcium at that level. Why? There's no um, no explanation for that. And I can't think of one that would... Now if you
1: had your calcium at 80 percent, and say for instance your magnesium was at about uh, 10 to 12 percent, would you not? Would you have room for the other elements in there, or
0: would you...? Believe it or not, you actually do have enough room to have adequate adequate elements. You're not going to have any, uh, you're not going to have any hydrogen ions, so you're not going to have any acidity in the soil. And a lot of people say that they don't want any acidity in the soil, but actually Dr. Albrecht said that you actually do want some acidity in the soil. And the reason you do is when, when you apply the, the minerals, the, the, the alkaline forming cations, and they exchange with that hydrogen, well that hydrogen goes onto the rock material and that acidity starts breaking down the rock material and making minerals available out of that, out of that parent material. So a little bit of acidity is actually good. That's why you may, that's why you're you hit just on the, slightly on the side of acidity, not way down. Um, and a lot of people say, well, well, I want to fill the soil up with with uh, nutri- nutritional cations, uh, so I'm going to fill it all the way to seven. But that won't hurt you per se. But if you really want to work on any reserves you might have in the soil, then you're going to want some acidity, acidity there to do that. So. Um,
1: if the calcium is higher than normal say 80% instead of 68 do all of the other <coughs> minerals like sodium and magnesium and whatever just proportionally should they be proportionally less just keep the proportion
0: <coughs> but just percentage wise less to keep it balanced is that how you, you don't them? have to but you definitely don't want to have them above what your ideal levels would be because sure. then you do start pushing out space on the on the colloidal sites and, and uh, limiting your trace elements. Because, so, um, yeah, calcium will tie up. The, the others can kind of tie it up, too. Yeah, I, I'm just
1: kind of overhearing, but just a reminder, for audio first, you want to repeat questions. Oh, right. Okay. Otherwise, they don't know what
0: you're talking about. Thank you for reminding me of that. So the question was, um, if you're you're running your calcium levels that high, do you want to proportionally lower the other cations, the magnesium, potassium, and and sodium? Uh, You'll see when we get to magnesium, there's only so much you can do. Go down with magnesium, and then you're going to be deficient. So you would run it on the lower end of those ideal levels, but you, you wouldn't go down too far on them. Okay, these are sources. For calcium, uh, you have high calcium lime, which runs between 30 and 38% calcium, 38% you don't usually see a lot of, that's a really high purity, high calcium lime, and it's got minimal magnesium in it. And it would be the, the material that would be preferred um, <clears throat> in cases where you have high magnesium levels in the soil and you don't want to add anything to it, but you need calcium. It's one of the one of the preferred sources on that, and they call that a lime, and I'll explain why they call these some things lime and and why they're liming materials and why other things are not liming materials. Uh, And then there's dolomite lime. Dolomite lime is about twenty to twenty-four percent calcium typically, and ten to twelve percent magnesium. It can vary out of those ranges, but that's typically about what it is. One thing I need to point out here when you're getting a limestone like that is how much of that you're actually going to get is going to be determined by the, the, the uh, size of the particles. And otherwise, um, how much goes through. You need 60% through a 100 mesh screen. The reason for that is you, the smaller the particle, the larger the, por- the surface area. And the larger the surface area, the more, surface, the, the more the microbes can work on it and break it down. So if you don't, you, we, I actually have to do a calculation to determine how much you're actually going to get. If you, you usually look at a three-year release, and so you have to actually do a calculation to figure out, based on what the, the screen size is, how much goes through what screen, is how much you're actually going to get in three years. The rest of it you'll eventually get, but it's going to be over 10 to 20 years. There are growers that I have who have applied what they call agricultural lime. It's a more coarse lime. There's not as many fines in it. And they've applied that so many years over the last few decades that now they have so much of that coarse lime in they're breaking down that they really don't have to put any lime on anymore. And they probably won't have to put any on for a while because all of that residual that didn't get released in the first three years is being released over time. It's actually a good way, by the way. A lot of people say, well, I don't want that coarse stuff because it you know, if you need it right away, then a a finer grind is preferable. But you can even take those coarser grinds because a lot of times you can get it for less money. They had it for sale up where we were for 50 cents a ton um, out of the quarry. You know, I would do an analysis on it and see what its finest a grind is because, and then I could calculate out, well, if if it was a, a fine enough grind that I could put it on and get it all in three years, well, if it's cheap enough, then and if, even if I have to put three or four times the amount on, then I'm building that reserve in the soil that can be released down the road and I could still get what I need in three years to get my you know get it back to where I need it to be. Um, so it's not necessarily a bad thing it's just a matter of you're trying to restore the balance to your soil you want to do it in the quickest time frame you can. Uh, they actually have finely ground materials that are, go through 200-300 mesh screens on this and they'll release all of it will release in six to 12 months. That's a fairly new thing within the last decade or so that's become available. So, And that was one of the reasons it would take three to five years to get your soil, soil balanced because you couldn't find a, a fine enough grind of limestone to get it to release out that, any more quickly than three years. But now that they have the fine, they pelletize it, they finally grind it, they pelletize it, and you can spread it that way, and you can get it to break down in six months or a year depending on the conditions and, and bring things up to where you need them be a lot faster. Uh, another thing to know about dolomite lime, and I'll probably say it again, is that magnesium doesn't start releasing. This is another factor that has to be taken into consideration. Magnesium does not start releasing out of dolomite lime until the second year. It'll, all of it will release in the, in the last two of the three years, whereas the calcium, the high calcium lime will start releasing right away. Um, And it has something to do with enough calcium has to release out of there before that magnesium will start releasing out of it. That's important to know depending on if you're borderline on magnesium and you put it on and the calcium goes up really fast, but you don't have the magnesium going up yet and you tank down below your minimum level of magnesium, you're going to have deficiencies in magnesium on your soil. And that has to be taken into consideration when you're making recommendations because you might have to use a material... Uh, that releases faster, like uh, K mag or, or Epsom salts, magnesium sulfate, something to supplement some of that magnesium, to make sure that you stay where you want, you need to stay. I'm going to talk about it later. There's a one-to-one relationship between calcium and magnesium. This is one of the things that's missed in Astor's book. If he doesn't take in a, he doesn't factor in. If calcium goes up one point, magnesium's going down one point. If magnesium goes up a point, calcium's going down a point. And that relationship works pretty consistently until you start getting into a very deficient low levels and then there's more resistance to that suppression. But you have to also take that into consideration and a lot of people don't take it into consideration and a lot of people who say the Albrecht system doesn't work because they're not, some of these factors that they're not taking into consideration and, and it's not working right and then they say, oh, well, this doesn't work because they don't understand those those issues. So it's a one-to-one relationship. One goes up, the other goes down, and when you're doing the calculations, you got to you got to factor that all into. Does
1: the one-to-one relationship work even if the other elements are not balanced?
0: Yep. Unless yeah, pretty much unless you've got massive amounts of sodium or or potassium, and sometimes they can interfere with it. But that's that's a rare situation, and you probably wouldn't be growing anything there anyway because it wouldn't grow because of the the excessive amount of those things. Did you say is the magnesium or the the dolomite line that releases the second, third year? It's the magnesium in the dolomite line. The magnesium component will not start releasing generally. Now, after I told you that, there is a a quarry in New Zealand, and the the dolomitic line they're getting out of that quarry will start releasing right away. Nobody seems to know why. It's just a different way the way the deposit formed. it, It does, but... But pretty much they, they, there aren't any other cases of that anywhere else. So, okay, why do they call it a, lime, a liming material? It's because when the carbonate separates from that, it neutralizes the acidity in the soil. Um, and so you could put something else with calcium in it, or magnesium in it, and it's not a carbonate, and it's not going to neutralize the acidity. And so they don't call it a liming material. But if you need the material, it's irrelevant whether it's, a, it's a, a liming material or not. Okay, so the, the third source is gypsum. G- gypsum is the stuff they make the sheetrock out of, and now don't by the way, don't ever use sheet, don't ever grind up sheetrock and and uh, put it on your soil. It actually has a bunch of chemicals in it, to binders. They actually use potassium sulfate, which is also another good source of, of fertility to solidify it, to set it up, but the, the glues and everything, the stuff they use in the paper is not, not really not really the greatest to be putting in your garden. Gypsum will not affect the pH, like the liming materials will, because it doesn't neutralize acidity. It's usually 20 to 24 percent calcium and 15 to 18 percent sulfur. In the, in the soil analysis that I use, by a Kinsey Ag, you must have 60% saturation of calcium before you start using gypsum. This is another factor that's not taken into consideration. Before you start utilizing gypsum, if you don't have 60% saturation of calcium on those colloids before you start, even though you're adding calcium with that gypsum, it'll strip calcium out of that soil. And nobody's quite sure what the, the, the- Yeah, it solubilizes it and calcium already leaves really easy with nitrogen and other things and so, uh, but you have to have at least 60% saturation. Now I I can't tell you what that number is on other soil tests, so don't take it if you're doing a different soil test and they've got a different percentage there, I I don't know what that number would be. But this is another factor that's missed a lot of times and, and um, so you can imagine when I was telling you about that or- that orchard over in North Carolina, they put four tons of gypsum on. That's uh, four tons of gypsum. That was 1,200 pounds of sulfur that they were putting on. And the way you get the way you get cations out of the soil, if you have excesses, which we'll talk about more when we get to sulfur, is with sulfur. Sulfur will leach these all of the major cations. So it will leach all the cations out of the soil if you have it in excessive quantities. Yeah, and since this is a double plus charge, for every pound of calcium, it'll take two pounds of sulfur to take any ac- excess out of the soil. For every For every pound of calcium, you'll need two pounds of, of sulfur. For each charge, you're going to need a pound of sulfur. So two pounds of sulfur to remove one pound of calcium.
1: Will that also be a, will that also be a factor for um, if you're low in sulfur?
0: Would it also be a factor? You won't. No, you won't. It's only if you have. If it's only if it's surplus sulfur. If you only have enough on there, and this is another thing you have to take into consideration. You don't want to put more sulfur on than you need. If you've got good levels, and you put more sulfur on than you need, you're going to be leaching stuff out and losing it, and and just wasting it. And it won't be. I would have to look at the whole picture and see you know, what the rest of the cations look, that, look like because it'll go after what's in excess the most. And so it may be that magnesium is what's in excess the most, and it, it'll, target it, it'll target it more than it would the calcium. So, but if you had excess of magnesium, you need to get rid of it too. Well, It'll always go after what's in, the most in excess and pull it out. It really stabilizes down as it gets. That's another indicator that the model's correct. The closer you get to the, to the, uh, the uh, ideal percentages that you want, the more they just stick around like that. They don't, they don't go anywhere unless they're taken out by the crop. OK, marl is a, uh, is a, a material that they, they get out of the ocean. And it's 30 to 38 percent calcium, and has clay impurities in it. It's a great source if you can get it. It's usually fairly inexpensive, um, primarily for calcium. Oyster shell lime is also 30 to 38 percent calcium. Oyster shell lime is usually is usually a coarser material, and so you're generally you're not going to get. It's it's usually easy to find because they use it. People are raising chickens for. as layers for eggs, they'll feed them oyster shell lime to give them the extra calcium that they need. So a lot of times feed stores will have the oyster shell lime. The problem is if you look at it, you open the bag and you look at it, there's a lot of big pieces in it. And so it'll take quite a while for it to break down. Other sources, rock phosphate. If you need phosphate, most phosphate sources, natural phosphate sources are about 20% calcium. Sometimes it's as high as 25% and about 20% phosphorus. Actually, it's 20% phosphate. I'm sorry, not there. there's a P there, but it's, it's actually 20% phosphate. I'll talk about that, you know, what the difference is and why. It's a weird thing, you know, when they, when they put those numbers on the bag, if you ever got a bag of fertilizer and you have the three numbers there, when, they, when the number that's on there is based on phosphate instead of el- the middle number, instead of elemental phosphorus, and the last number is based on potash, K2O, rather than K, it's rather than elemental potassium. And nobody seems to know why it's done that way, except that that's the way they started doing it a long time ago, and and somebody said, well, it's so that you think you're getting more fertilizer than you you are, what you're paying for by putting it on. And an interesting phenomenon with this with that reality, and I'll, I'll probably touch on it again when we get to phosphorus or sulfur, is that. Phosphate, phosphorus is considered a major element in its requirement. But sulfur, it doesn't leach. Sulfur leaches. And if you take sulfur, which is usually measured in elemental form, and you turn it into sulfate, convert it to sulfate, which is the form that's used by the plants, um, pound for pound it's almost the same. The requirement. And if you're growing vegetables, particularly High-sulfur requiring vegetables like the alliums and the brassicas, things like that, which are uh, alliums or onions and garlic and that type of thing, and the brass, broccoli, cauliflower, high-sulfur requiring crops, they're pulling more sulfur than they're pulling uh, phosphorus. But they'll compare apples to oranges and say, oh, well we need all this phosphate and we don't need very much sulfur. But if you convert it up to the sulfate form so you have apples to apples, or you, consult, you convert the phosphate form down to elemental phosphorus, Pound for pound, they're, they're equal. And in sulfur leeches, and we'll talk about some more issues with sulfur when we get there that make it a, make it a problem. Um, this is a dilemma for the organic growers. Um, and, and the reason it's a dilemma, if you have high calcium and you have low phosphate or low phosphorus levels, your only sources that are certifiable have both calcium and phosphorus in it, phosphate in it. So you have to overload the calcium when you're already excessive in it in order to try to get the phosphorus. And Larry can contest to this because we're working on a situation like that. And the, the, how you compensate for it is you put more sulfur on to leach out the extra calcium you're putting in. The catch with that is sulfur is antagonistic to pho- phosphorus. And if you're already low and you're putting the extra sulfur on to uh, leach out the extra calcium you're putting on trying to build the phosphorus, you're antagonizing it with the sulfur. And it becomes a very, a very difficult situation to try to work with. Um, we'll see how it's working out after a couple of years. But. It's leaving with the groundwater.
1: Groundwater?
0: Yeah. Now, if you're like out west where you got in a dry climate and you're not moving enough water and eva- you're getting more evaporation than you're getting infiltration, it'll bring it up to the surface and it'll leave it on the surface, the water will evaporate and the the calcium will stay there and you'll see it as a you'll see it as a white crusting on the surface. That's not always sodium salt, it's it's mineral salts. And so yeah, when I was out in col we were out in Colorado for twenty years and, and we had to really be careful. We made sure we ran enough water to get that water to go down out of the root zone and not come back up from evaporation. Most people do not use enough water in a high-tunnel greenhouse situation. I, you know, almost every sample I've gotten out of high tunnels and greenhouses, they're having an accumulation of salts in there because they're not running enough water through that soil, and that goes for high rainfall areas as well as low rainfall because in a high tunnel, it's not getting rained on, and so if you're not putting enough water in there to to leach it down out of the root zone, it's going to it'll actually it can actually come up and get into the aerobic zone and then your EC, your electrical conductivity, climbs because of all the soluble salts and that starts burning your roots and causing all kinds of problems.
1: When I run my drip tape in my greenhouse, I had excess sulfur because I wasn't putting enough water to reach it out. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's being held up, it's being kept up there by the sulfur. Yeah, kind of a brownish, it's kind of a tan, yeah. Yeah, it's staying up at the surface. It's not actually getting wet and being infiltrated down into the. Oh, he was saying in his greenhouse, in his high tunnel, he was seeing what looks like a light tan, looks like the the, the, the colloidal phosphate, or the Tennessee brown phosphate, accumulating up on the surface and that's what's happening yeah it's it's coming up and and accumulating on the surface and it has a light tan it's kind of a light tan color to it not enough water moving through when you're using drip irrigation and that drip irrigation is focused and then it's spreading out down underneath you have a lot of the top of the soil it's not it's not going down you have to really use some sprinkler irrigation or some other means of irrigation to totally wet the whole surface and and work that down all of that down i had the same problem in my high tunnel Um, where I needed to put more I was using drip tape and so I had to go to a different type of irrigation to, to, you don't have to do it all the time you just you know a couple times a year if you just you know wash it you know get it flush it, and flush it down out of there and get it on down where water is going to spread and continue to keep it keep it down there you'll be okay
1: that
0: would be that could be calcium it could be magnesium it could be potassium it could be sodium any of those are going to come up and have that white crystal and look to them
1: Leaching out the minerals. We're probably only thirty inches topsoil down the rock, sandstone. Will that absorb these other minerals? The sandstone?
0: All you need to do is get it out of the root zone. It'll go all you need to do is get it out of the root zone. Out of the aerobic zone. When it gets down there, it'll go laterally some way or another. Unless you're in a bowl. I mean if you're in a bowl where it, it's gonna concentrate down in there, but yeah, it usually works its way down, and it worked wherever gravity is going to take it. It'll work its way that way, and it'll come out, you know, in a spring or a creek as it works its way out of the ground at a lower elevation and work its way. It eventually, it either works its way really deep into the subsoil, or it works its way out into the groundwater and and uh, washes its way to the ocean.
1: So the rock, the sandstone, which is not very porous, it won't absorb that probably.
0: Well, it probably will take some of it. It'll go in go into it. Huh?
1: In Florida, when we lived here, there was a soft rock phosphate, Tennessee, is Tennessee Brown, and mm-hmm. no, those are different, is it?
0: Um, they, they have about the same percentages in them. Tennessee Brown phosphate is a reactive phosphate, um, and, you, yeah, to try to explain that, and the other ones are the, is a colloidal phosphate, they're basically the same thing. Um, they're both from rock phosphate. They both come from rock phosphate, and they're they're the washings where they take the rock. They're taking their rock phosphate ore out, and they're taking it off to make triple super phosphate out of, which is a high con- highly concentrated phosphate source. That's typically is the most common used source in commercial agriculture. It's triple super phosphate, but um, but they're basically the same. They're ba- basically the same thing. The Tennessee brown phosphate. Let me just say this about it. So the people that are organic, they, they want to understand this. Phosphate is, phosphorus is highly reactive and it reacts with heavy metals. And so all of your natural sources of phosphate rock are, have also got heavy metals in them. The Tennessee brown phosphate is the cleanest. And I tell people, I say, you know, if I need it, I use monoammonium phosphate. I say it's actually a cleaner source than the natural sources are. Uh, because it does, they, the heavy metals have been re- pretty much removed out of it. So it's not a problem as long as, as, long as you've got buffering there and you've got, you've got balance. Calcium is a tremendous suppressor of heavy metals. So you always want to keep your, your calcium levels you know, optimum if you, you've got situations like that. But it, it's just the reality that phosphate is highly reactive. Phosphorus is highly reactive and it reacts with lots of things but it, it likes heavy metals.
1: This brown Tennessee phosphate mm-hmm. begin, is a leftover pocket. Monsanto's using something out of it to make...
0: They're, they're, they're mining the, the rock phosphate, the apatite rock, and it's the, it's the the washing. When they wash it to, to load the ship off to process, it's just the stuff that washes off or the, 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 the soft, smaller material that they just don't. That's what most of the stuff coming out of Florida is. It's all the the, the stuff they've washed off from the mine, mining of uh, phosphate rock.
1: So it's not actually a chemical it's not, process then? It's a washing no, process? No,
0: it's just It just gets washed off in the process of uh, processing the ore, prepping the ore for shipment. Okay, I wonder, because they said yeah.
1: that, that what Monsanto extractors was something to make roundup. Does that make any sense? I'm not sure. I just want to make sure we're... Hmm?
0: The triple super, the triple super phosphate. I'll tell you a story about phosphate rock when we get to sulfur and how times change and people don't. And they all of a sudden find themselves in a, in a, in a bad way. Okay, uh, layer manure which can be variable in its content is really high in calcium because they supplement oyster shell to the chickens to strengthen their eggs. And so most of that calcium goes on through and winds up in the manure. And so if you if you're looking for calcium and you want some other nutrients with it, if you can get a composted layer manure, uh, compost, you'll get really high calcium levels in it. While I'm, while I'm doing that, just so I don't forget, copper, if you need copper, turkeys. Turkey manure is really high in copper. Copper uh, turkeys are very susceptible to aneurysms copper is used to build collagen the stuff that makes your skin elastic your vet, your blood vessels you know elastic so they give stretch and give and but they don't break turkeys are really susceptible they don't they don't utilize they copper very well so they have to supplement it to them and a the majority of that goes through in the manure too and so if you can get turkey manure or turkey litter you can get a, a usually a lot less expensive source of copper Than what it costs to buy in the elemental, you you know, in the sulfate.
1: They They usually
0: they usually approve it, but you would have to ask your certifier.
1: um, um, They
0: probably do. You would not believe the stuff that's okay as long as it's natural. (laughs) So, yeah. Right, yeah. They're supposed to be composted first, and then, um, of course, you know, what people call compost sometimes is questionable, but sometimes it's just aged manure. Because the reality is they're feeding them so many antibiotics and hormones, so many drugs and everything, the antibiotics are killing off the microbes that would would normally break down the manure and compost it. And so then it just sits there and ages, because unless you inoculate it, if you inoculate it and and, uh, Right. So the, so the heat, the heat will, will kill weed seeds and stuff like that, but and possibly right? pathogens, but you really didn't compost it. It didn't really break down into actual compost. Hmm. People find their way around all kinds of things, and the you would, would stand your hair on end if you knew them all. So, um, Does somebody else have their hand up? This is right here. Um, and the last one is industrial byproducts. It's variable, I have kiln dust here. Sugar beet waste, they filter sugar beet juices that they, when they're making sugar, when they're squeezing the juices out of sugar beets, they filter it with, with uh, high calcium lime. And you can usually get it pretty, if you're close to a sugar beet processing plant, you can usually get it for near nothing. Um, just for the haul it away, because they get mountains of it and they, Sugar beet is now a genetic commodity. Right. So, so a, a big chunk of sugar beets are now GMO sugar beets, and so you've got that reality that's coming into play. Um, the reason I say this is a fundamental course, because I could bury off on every single one of these and start talking about all these issues that you need to. Um, so what you need to do is you need to get fundamentals first, and then you need to start looking at refinements of how may, you know, I need to take this into consideration and that into consideration. A lot of people don't want to use any animal products. Because of the the, the high levels of, of drugs and and stuff, and it's not degrade, not degraded. Um, so, but you even have plant-based products that that um, can be a problem. I mean, if you're using cow manure, they're all eating they're all eating GMO corn and soy and, and uh, all of that, and it's not it's not degraded. Glyphosate doesn't degrade anywhere near as fast as they say it does. And it's causing it's causing major problems. This is another reason you need to grow your own stuff, you, because the food supply is, is a real mess, a real mess, and it's it's only going to get worse. It, it's, and in fact, it's rapidly getting worse. So anyway, but that yeah that that given that they're all GMOs now, that, that might not be the greatest source. They use it, they also use it to scrub uh, or it's kiln dust and and um, cement processing and everything like that. Uh, there's, there's a few other sources like that. Some people, if it's cl- close to them, they can get it really cheap. The second most important thing to good information from a soil test is to reuse the right materials. And so some of these materials, given the overall scheme of things, are okay. But if you have a better source, <laughs> then you'd be better off. I just put it up there because those are sources and, and there's a lot, of, a lot of people that use them.
1: What's the difference between kiln dust and Portland
0: cement, what do you need? Uh, not a whole lot. <laughs> so, yeah,
1: The other, because of proprietary mixes, the Portland cement, you're gone, right? you don't want to use Portland cement, it's got all kinds of stuff in it.
0: Yeah, this is before, this, safe. this is before the...
1: find out what's in I've tried for
0: years. You know, it's just straight Portland cement, the, the actual compound. Not after, I know that they're adding tons of chemicals to it after, but in the processing of it, this is the dust that's generated. It's prior to when they add all the other additives to it. So. so, But I don't know. I mean, that stuff changes. You've got to stay on top of it the whole time because it could change, and you thought it was this way, and it's not that way anymore, and we'll see that when we get to sulfur. A lot of things happen like that. Okay. right okay so we'll move on to magnesium magnesium is also a double plus charge cation because they're double plus charge cations that's why magnesium and calcium vie with each other that's why they have that one-to-one relationship and they they you know one can push the other out of the way if if it's one levels raised and the other the other ones not Uh, and if you've got low levels of both of them this is an important factor if you've got low levels of both of them and you need to raise raise one and it looks like you have enough, for example, a magnesium and you raise the calcium and you don't take into consideration how much magnesium needs to be offset that, you'll just drive your magnesium down into a a level. And I'll talk about that issue in just a second here. You'll drive it down into a deficiency level, um, just raising your calcium to where you need it to be. It sounds kind of weird, but you need to raise them both together, even though it looks like you have enough there, you need to put more on in order to offset the influence the suppressive influence of the calcium. Okay, so it's part of the chlorophyll molecule. It's actively involved in photosynthesis. It aids in phosphate metabolism. It's actually involved in a lot of metabolic activities. It activates several enzyme systems. Remember I talked about the enzyme systems and hormone systems? The enzyme systems require minerals. Minerals are cofactors for all of these enzymes. And in the Krebs cycle that produces energy, there's minerals that are, are cofactors in those enzymes that that generates all that energy in there, and if you're missing one of them, then you disrupt, you don't don't get all the energy out of that cycle that you should get. And you also wind up accumulating certain elements because they can't do their job. And you can get an accumulation of of a a trace element in there that begins starting to cause problems because of of its buildup, because you don't have a balanced system running there, because you're missing some other trace element supposed to be there as a cofactor. It's involved in soil structure, like I said before, and magnesium is mobile. So the plant will take and move it. If it doesn't have enough, it'll take and move it from the older leaves to the newer growth. And so your deficiency symptoms will usually show up on the older leaves of the plant first. So it'll be the older part of the plant that you'll see, see the, the symptoms on first. And that deficiency symptom is a yellowing modeling of older leaves. So your older leaves, if it starts to get to kind of a modeled yellowing look to them, that's an indication of magnesium deficiency. And the excess, symptoms of excess is, are actually similar to the deficiency symptoms. But you usually don't get an excess unless you're applying, and I'll, t- I'll explain why. Magnesium is made available in a very narrow range. I've got my, my ideas about this element and what it represents, but I'm, I'm not ready to go there yet. But it, it has to be in a very narrow range. If it goes below 10%, you won't get enough. If it goes above 20%, you won't get enough. And the only, the only, way, the only reason for that is the higher the magnesium goes, the tighter the soil gets. And it gets locked down between the clay plates, and it's not available. And so you can have their soils with 25 30%, 35% magnesium, and they've shown deficiency on the, on the plants. And you have to actually come in and put foliar magnesium on when you got all this magnesium in the soil. But it, it, it's only available in that narrow range. And the higher you go 10 to 12%, 12% is optimum in most cases until you get into the lower CEC soils. But from 10 to 12 percent, once you start going up above 12 percent, it starts getting harder and harder to get it. So, sulfur, elemental sulfur, same as it is for calcium, a pound for each charge. So two pounds of sulfur will remove a pound of magnesium. Okay, these are your sources for magnesium. Dolomite lime again. Again, you need to take and remember that you have to keep in mind that magnesium will not start releasing out of the dolomite lime until the second year, starting in the second year, not the first year. And so you need to make sure it's not your magnesium levels are not going to go below the minimum levels until that starts releasing. Otherwise, you have to supplement it with one of these other two materials here that are more soluble to offset it. There is uh, Sulpomag and KMag; Those are two brand names of what is potassium... Uh, Potash of Magnesia Sulfate. Sulpomag. S- sulfate it's Sulfate of p- Potash Magnesia is what that's sort for. It's a potassium magnesium sulfate. <laughs> that's easier to say. Uh, K Mag is just another brand name for the same thing. It's typically 22% K2O. You see I put K2O there. Uh, if you wanted the actual elemental K, you'd have to multiply that by 0.83 to take the the oxygen out to get what your actual percentage, which is, is actually uh, it's uh, 1.83 or something like that percent or 18.3 percent. It's not actually 22 if, it, if you're looking at a, actually elemental potassium. 11 percent magnesium typically and 20 to 22 percent sulfur. most of the most of them were 22 percent. There's a certifiable organic mine source that's only 20 percent sulfur. Trio, yeah. And then there's uh, magnesium sulfate, Epsom salts. You guys all know probably what that is. Uh, It's usually nine to eleven percent magnesium, eleven to fourteen percent sulfur. Highly soluble source. Um, There is another source. It's just become available. It's called Kiserit. Uh, K. You're probably not going to find it. Anytime soon, the commercial the big commercial growers will be using it. It's a little bit higher analysis magnesium, and it breaks down a little bit slower. It comes from Europe. It's K uh, I K I K I E K S E R I T. It's either K E I or K-I-E-I. I think it's K E I S E R I T. It's called Kiserit. It's a it's a mined material too. It's a little bit different uh, formulation than in this one, but you're not going to, you're not going to find, find it in any garden centers or anything like that. It'll be a long time before that one shows up. It is, a, it is a better source actually though. Than.
1: Oh, the magnesium
0: sulfate. Yeah, Ma- there's nothing wrong with magnesium sulfate. It's just highly soluble. And if you have to use a, uh, working with, anybody, you know, uh, Kibidula farms over in, in Tanzania, I'm working with them and they have no dolomite, so they, they need both calcium and magnesium. They need a lot of it. And they have no dolomite lime source in the country or anywhere nearby. It's, it's all high calcium lime. There's no dolomite lime. And so we're, uh, we're having to use magnesium sulfate, and I'm not really comfortable with doing that because the amount of sulfur we're putting on, they're deficient in all their major cations, and to put that amount of sulfur on to try to offset uh, on the magnesium is not a good solution. The, the solution is they need to ship it in. Um, so anybody with a lot of money who wants to help them out and say, they they can't find, they're having a hard time finding the the fertilizer resources that they need over there. And they've got a lot of crazy laws, like boron was outlawed. Uh, He was able to find it, they use it in the glass industry, you know, the corral dishes you get, it gives it that, that, that temper, boron gives that temper to, to glass. And so he was able to find it in the glass industry over there to be able to get it, but Technically you're not supposed to be allowed to use it. What country? Tanzania, Africa. The biggest challenge working in the mission field is, is to find the sources you need. You can do the we can do the testing from distance and find out what you need, but uh, some parts of the world it, it can be a real challenge to get the materials you need. Well, I mean you could ship it in by the container load. This is a project I would, would hope that people that have means who want to be supportive, it would be a, a really good thing to support. Is helping to, to, to move those type of resources to them so they can have the best materials to because they have tremendous potential over there. They they, they could be producing a, a couple million dollars worth of avocados off of that farm, but they've got to get the they've got to get the the fertility elements into that ground that they need. Okay, I talked about that one to one relationship of calcium and magnesium. Uh, when you're applying calcium, you have to take this into consideration. In order to make sure that you're not going to undermine, in order to, you know if you want need calcium, and it can look like, uh, and I've seen this done in growers, and they came to me after they had a problem, and uh, you always wind up getting people's problems, <laughs> but then you start getting a good once you fix their problems, then you then you start getting, you know everything, from them. But, you know where a, a consultant told them to actually over in Tanzania, Kibidula. The, the lab over there they had soil test done over there and the lab over there recommended high calcium lime because they said you have enough magnesium but i told jason i said if you do that i said you're going to drive your magnesium into the ground and and your trees are going to start suffering they're going to have a problem they're going to have a hard time because they don't have they don't have a very big bucket on those soils over there either so they don't have a lot of they don't have a lot of wiggle room to, to mess with that Um, Again, it came back to the same thing. They were looking at just the pounds. They weren't looking at the size of the bucket and how many pounds you actually had to fill the bucket appropriately. Okay, as these two relate to soil structure, these two play the major role in structuring soil from a chemical standpoint. Calcium flocculates the soil colloids. Clay colloids are like plates, like flat plates, kind of like the pictures. I'm not a great artist, but... Uh, kind of like I have I've drawn there, kind of like a plate structure. It's a it's a crystalline. Actually, when it becomes colloidal clay, it's a totally transformed from a, a soil particle to a, a crystalline lattice structure. It's not it's not actually a soil a smaller particle of soil anymore. It's a it's a different structure. Uh, but they're they're flat in their structure, and calcium flocculates those colloids. And what that means is as you see, I have it drawn here. Um, oops, hit the right button here. How I draw here, those charges, remember that the colloids have a charge to them. On their surface, there's a, there's a negative charge. And those charges on the calcium ion will att- attract to that. And the way it attaches tends to be in an edge-to-edge attachment and a face-to-edge attachment like that magnesium, and it increases pore space. And I think if you look at this, can you see how this would make more pore space? Over here, magnesium aggregates the soil colloids. In other words, what it does is it's face to face. It it draws them together face to face like that. And so you can see how that would tighten the soil up. It would decrease pore pore space that way. And that's why calcium needs to dominate the soil. That's why you have 68% calcium, you want, in, in general, It's 60 to 70, I'll say this, it's 60 to 70% calcium typically and 10 to 20% magnesium. And where you get into the lower calcium percentages and the higher magnesium percentages is when you go into the the lower CEC soils where you just can't keep enough pounds there because the bucket's just not big enough. And so you have to make sure you can keep minimal magnesium levels there and you can actually go low enough where you have to go above. And you want these two to add up to 80% all the time. You want it always to add up to 80%. If it adds up to more than that, there's more there than it's showing. Uh, I'll give you an illustration. Let's say you, had, let's say you had 75% calcium, which is not bad. I mean, you're 168. You're higher than you want to be, but it's not too bad. You have 75% calcium, and you have 15% magnesium, which is also not too bad. You're close to where you want to be. How, what does that add up to? What's 75 and 15? 90. That means there's a lot more hidden magnesium. It's typically magnesium that's hidden. And if you brought that calcium for every point, remember, for every point one goes down, the other goes up. So you had 15% magnesium, 75% calcium. If I take that down to 68 where I wanted it, how many points did I take off? Seven? I need to add that seven to the 15. Now what do I have? I have 22% magnesium. That's what the physical reality, the physics reality in that soil is. It's 22, it's, it's a tight soil. Even though it looks not bad, if they add up to more than 80 percent, you've got more there, and it's typically magnesium influencing adversely influencing. Uh, but there are cases where the calcium is actually the calcium went the other way. The soil gets too loose and fluffy, and it just, just gets light and fluffy, and uh, and it can blow away and wash away.
1: So what approach would you-
0: I would I would put sulfur on and sulf and, and any amendments that I needed that were in sulfate forms I put it on to take have the sulfur start pulling them both down. Sulfur. Yeah. You have too much of both of them. And particularly the magnesium you have way too much. When you get up over 20%, you got it actually interferes with what I didn't say but it interferes with nitrogen utilization. It takes way more nitrogen in a high magnesium soil to grow stuff because they the can't get to the nitrogen. It's just the soil's so tight, you can't get to the nitrogen. Would you say that you, you see on
1: it, is it common for you to see people to think they have clay soils but actually have like not clay soils because of that? Yeah,
0: actually high magnesium soils are harder than high, than high, high magnesium sandy soils are harder than high magnesium clay soils. It turns into cement. You you try to put a soil probe into a high magnesium soil, it's dried out, you'll bust it. You just, you'll have to reinforce it and use a weighted mallet to hammer it in there and good luck getting it in. They usually use an auger to to drill it in. That's how hard it can get when it's dried out. Oh, yeah, the question was, could you mistake high magnesium soils for, for high clay soils? Yes, and the answer is yes, you can. Magnesium, when high magnesium soils, water won't drain through. If you want to move stuff out, you've got to get the magnesium level and open the soil up. It's just like the Bible talking about the softening of the heart or the hardening of the heart. You know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It it was a character that he was cultivating in in himself. Uh, You can go in in a high magnesium soil, and we're going to talk about tillage. We're going to have to take a break here, but we're going to talk about tillage. You can go in with a ripper, through this this tight high magnesium soil open it up and it rains it'll just run back together like soup and it will be harder than it was the last before you, you opened it up if you do not change the conditions in that soil you will continue to make it worse and worse and worse that's the whole thing when Pharaoh plow, or when God ploughed Pharaoh's heart each time he ploughed it there was no change in the heart there was no change in the character and it just got harder and harder and harder until there was rebellion just
1: Could I be fooled by high magnesium, soil, and compaction? Just having soil that's just
0: plain compact? Yeah. You can have compaction from the running of heavy equipment over it, but one of the interesting things is when you get that ideal balance between calcium and magnesium, it's like a sponge. These, These bonds here, you run over it. If you run over it with a heavy piece of equipment, it'll bend, and then it'll come right back up. Now when I say it'll come right back up, it may take a few days for it or a week or so for it to come back up into into position, but it's going to want to go back into the bonding that it has. So it acts kind of like a sponge effect to prevent compaction in the soil. And it's really hard to create a lot of compaction in a soil that's got balanced calcium and magnesium in it. Usually when you get the compaction, you have good calcium levels because you have too much magnesium too. And you're above 80 percent, and you get a lot—you you got a lot more compaction because of the high magnesium, and it, the calcium can't have that—that that full effect like it would otherwise until you get that magnesium out. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www. Dot audioverse.org.